0: I think you get little glimpses of the divine sometimes in music, of something larger than you, something larger than life, something that you can't really grasp, and again, something that you can't really hold on to. It's just those little moments. And that's enough that you keep hunting it somehow, or you keep wanting to revisit that place.
1: That was Kira Skull, and this is Nordic Portraits. Kira Skull is a critically acclaimed singer-songwriter who rose to fame in Denmark as frontwoman of the eponymously titled rock band Kira and the Kindred Spirits. Known for her diverse range and bold creative collaborations with other artists, Kira has released no less than 14 albums to date, including the remarkable 2018 release The Echo of You, which was written and recorded in the aftermath of the tragic loss of her husband Nikolai. Kira, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. Kira, artistically speaking, you've evolved greatly over many years, but I wanted to go all the way back to 1993, when a 17-year-old young lady bought a ticket to London and ended up in L.A. Yeah. I just wondered, looking back, how you would describe that younger version of yourself.
0: Well, I guess I was definitely looking for a ticket out of here. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of Copenhagen and uh, yeah, I was looking for an adventure. But also, I guess I was fleeing a difficult stretch. You know, my teenage years were quite challenging and uh, I was looking for a different type of life and I wanted to play music. So I was looking for a way of that becoming a reality. But I didn't really foresee what I was getting into. It was all a kind of string of not accidents, but things that kind of just happened and then all of a sudden I found myself in a place and and I stayed away for eight years, yeah.
1: What was it about your teenage years that you found challenging particularly?
0: Well, I think I was uh, sort of a misfit in a way. And it was, I mean, my parents were divorced when I was 10 and I think that whole breakup was quite difficult. You know, that whole, my father was married five times. It was just third wife at that time was also the mother of my little sister. I have two other sisters. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, those years were very difficult. And uh, I ran away when I was quite young and was hanging out in squats and, you know, was just finding my feet. It was just I remember it as being difficult, not feeling like I really belonged anywhere.
1: And did music play a role in that development?
0: Music played a great role, I think. It was uh, There was a whole metamorphosis in finding music and being inspired by all these different artists that was primarily from outside of Denmark. There's a few Danish artists that I will still kind of mention, but I had my main influences from American or British artists at that time.
1: So what led you to move from London and then on to L.A.?
0: So that was kind of just an accident in a way i mean i went to london not thinking that i was going to stay i went over there with a girlfriend and i met a, a man and just a Leopard grove tube station actually <laughs> wow, he looked like a kind of modern day jimmy hendrix you know he was very kind of elaborately dressed in like a long priest robe and like lots of jewelry and yeah, he had a guitar on his back and some strawberries, and we were very seduced by his whole kind of uh, you know, presence somehow. And he invited us to come with him, and we went to Hampstead Heath, and we hung out and we played some music. And then, yeah, and then I sort of started an affair with him, went back to Copenhagen, and I came back to be with him. He had been back in the States, and then I, I stayed in an apartment which was rented by a manager he had in London, and, and then he didn't turn up. And I waited there for like nearly 24 hours and then it turned out that he was kind of held in customs and he wasn't allowed back into England. So we had just very short time to decide whether I was going to go with him. So I just ended up going, you know, like spend all my money on a one-way ticket and and went to Los Angeles.
1: How did you feel when you arrived in LA? Well, I
0: had already been to Los Angeles, you know, because my I have an aunt. My dad's sister moved to Los Angeles when she was 18. She married an American man and, you know, they collected all these antique photographs and and ended up becoming very wealthy, actually, selling those to some Japanese collectors. So they were kind of my rich American family. <laughs> but And they kind of wanted to, to try and um, help straighten me out, I think, at the time. So I was kind of, when I was 15 years old, I was sent over there. And they gave up after a month or so. I sent me back home. But we're very good friends today, you know. They lived in Brentwood. It was a very different life. So I had been to LA, but I hadn't seen the sights of Los Angeles, which I was about to experience as well. I mean, I lived between Los Angeles and London for eight years. I guess I was in my mid-twenties when I returned to Copenhagen.
1: But I've heard you describe your situation in LA as pretty rough and rock and roll. Is it fair to say Yeah.
0: It was, indeed. The man that I was with for the first five years was, you know, I was only 17 when I met him. He was 33, and he came from Flint, Michigan, which was like a a town not far from Detroit. And it was very kind of hardcore ghetto. He he, He was a black man. He grew up in that community and from a gospel tradition, but also he grew up with a lot of violence and abuse in that family. So he was... He was damaged in a lot of ways, and a very difficult person to live with, but also very seductive and um, creative. You know, I guess he also developed those qualities from need, in a sense. And he taught me a lot, you know, about music. He was a brilliant songwriter and singer, and uh, in a way, I had my kind of main musical education from him. But it was also very turbulent because we kind of traveled between London and Los Angeles. And he always burned a lot of bridges. So there was a lot of falling out with people. And one day you were living very well, you know, like in a big house in Hollywood Hills. And the next day you were staying on the backseat of a car. and Yeah, and it was a very abusive relationship as well. So it was some very difficult years. I ended up escaping him and um, went back to Denmark for a short time and went then on to London and stayed on for another four years nearly, Mm. yeah.
1: During that time in LA, did you find that you were able to find your own voice artistically or did you feel too entangled with him and his creative work?
0: I think I was just very much living from day to day. And I think also part of being young is that you have that sense that you have an endless amount of time you know, you you do have more time somehow, you know. I was inspired by all of my experiences, both in the relationship I was in, but also in the band. So in that sense, I, it was part of my kind of finding my own expression and, as a songwriter, but it didn't really materialize till later on.
1: You mentioned the band. Was that, was that butterfly, butterfly Species? Butterfly Species, yeah. I had a listen, and it's pretty raw and and pretty (laughs) heavy rock.
0: Yeah, how did you find that?
1: Uh, The internet is a wonderful thing, Kira. (laughs) (laughs) But is it true that when you played at the Troubadour that you actually had a python on stage with you?
0: We did at one point, yeah. (laughs) We were like, I mean, we spent a lot of time on these kind of... I remember like playing shows at that time was like half of it was just staging the room it was hard work, you know. I was when we were living in London. We did all these full moon concerts, and I would be going around to all these kind of flower vendors, getting all the flowers that they were throwing out. And we had flowers everywhere, and candles everywhere, and big curtains and fabrics. And it was a, it was definitely, you know, you entered into a space and you came to one of our shows.
1: Musically, did you feel that you were onto something special with that group?
0: I think we would definitely were we, were we were a power group in a sense, you know. It was, there was a lot of energy in that band. The bass player, Orson Vaji, who also came to join Cure uh, in the Kindred Spirits, he was also in that band. And Laos Sonne, who is a, quite a well-known drummer here in Denmark, he went away with me when we were really young. We knew each other from when we were, I think I met Laos when I was 14. So there was a lot of resources within the band and a lot of potential. I don't think that we really, we didn't put it down. I don't think we manifested it on on any recordings, you know, but I think people saw the power and potential of the band when they saw us play. It was kind of undeniable in a way, I think.
1: When you came back to Denmark Mm. and Kira and the Kindred Spirit starts up and you find yourself with great momentum domestically here in Denmark. Yeah. How did that feel for you? I mean, did you feel like, okay, now I'm in the right place with the right people.
0: It was sort of ironic in a sense because um, I kind of felt like I traveled around the world and ended up finding my band in my own backyard. You know, in a sense, that was kind of strange. But I also found that the level of musicianship here was extremely high. I was really impressed returning home how good everybody was at playing their instrument. And, you know, I found some really brilliant players really quickly. So, in a way, yeah, it seemed like it was meant to be. And I also think that coming back to Denmark, I found the space to kind of actually dive into the process of recording and writing. For the first time, I wasn't just surviving, you know, being on the road or being in the midst of all this turmoil. So, in that sense, I think, um, yeah, it made sense in a way that it happened looking back.
1: So it didn't feel like a step backwards after you'd had this steely resolve to go overseas and prove yourself there?
0: I mean, I never thought that I was just going to stay here, you know. (laughs) I always felt like I was just going to be here for a minute. But then all of a sudden, you know, I found myself actually having a life here and a career here and uh, that's kind of how my life has been, you know. It wasn't really a plan staying in L.A. either, you know what I mean? (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. It took me a while. I felt kind of torn in between these different cultures. Coming back to Denmark, I felt a little bit too loud at first. I always had that feeling living here when I was younger that I didn't really belong and that kind of stuck with me for a while. But I think that has changed over time. I think it had more to do with me coming into myself and getting to know myself better and feeling more comfortable within my own skin. In a way that's made me more comfortable here and anywhere I go.
1: In terms of the public perception, would an audience in Denmark, in your opinion, be open to you showing up on stage with a Python or a <laughs> full moon party atmosphere?
0: I think um, maybe the time was different. Then you know, we definitely had enough of that rock and roll air about us that. Some people would have been intrigued, you know. <laughs> but I'm I'm not sure how it would have gone down overall. But yeah, there was some mysticism there, which I think is a part of the whole rock and roll mythology, which we all bought into.
1: Well, you toured Denmark constantly. Like I saw that at one point Akira mm. and the Kindred Spirits had played over 100 shows in one year yeah. in Denmark. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, What did that teach you about performing and being on the road constantly?
0: Well, it definitely taught me a lot, you know. I think we almost played too many shows, to be honest. I think it was part of killing the band in a way because we also maybe played too many wrong shows. We played maybe too many places where we were more of a kind of an attraction of some sort than people actually really understanding the music and I think that that was tough in a way There's a lot of festivals in Denmark where it's mainly about drinking beer and you know it's not really about the music so you have to make a big spectacle but it's not really it's not like going to Roskilde where you kind of people are really there to hear music so I think that was challenging but it also made you tough in a way you know you could perform under any circumstance But I think, you know, we played a lot of festivals and I also got a bit tired of that. I wanted to bring in some more dynamics into my music and my expression overall, my songwriting. And so, yeah, we wore ourselves out in a sense.
1: I'm curious because obviously society has changed a lot since that time, but Mm. being the front woman of a rock band, so a woman in a very – male-dominated culture, such as rock has been historically. Mm. Was that in any way something that was difficult to navigate for you at the time?
0: Well, people ask me that a lot, and I never really thought much about it. You know, mm. I just played with the people that were around, you know, the people that I kind of had a mutual understanding with on a musical level and just so happened to be men a lot of the time. But I never really felt that our sex played a big role in that. And I also think that a lot of male performers in rock and roll has always been playing with that androgynous element. So I was very inspired by men, which I kind of felt I could mirror myself, but people like Mick Jagger or David Bowie, as well as female singers, you know, Patti Smith, who some might say has a kind of masculine vibe, you know, so I think we've always kind of, work with breaking down those stereotypes of what a man and a woman is to be so in that sense i guess also i found that all the men i've worked with in music have always been very very sensitive in a way it hasn't been very male dominant in that sense yeah maybe they've been more sensitive than me on some levels (laughs) i mean i don't know it was never an issue for me
1: You said that you felt that the band may have burnt itself out. Hmm. So how was that for you then, walking away from something special where you'd gained momentum and had had the most success of your career to date, then deciding to go solo? Was that a difficult decision to make?
0: I think it was like, it was a mutual thing that happened in the band. I think we were kind of done, you know. At first it was difficult, but I think it was necessary for me to actually develop. I think... From a career perspective, some people would have preferred (laughs) that I had just stayed on that one track. I could have just continued doing that and would have probably just made a fine living for myself doing that. But I think that, yeah, I needed to discover other parts of myself which I couldn't within that constellation. And then that's kind of become my whole drive, that curiosity not changing necessarily but evolving in a way and uh, and also kind of breaking down the traditional genres of music. I feel that that's very interesting in a way. I don't really like to be put in a box, you know, of, oh, she's that person playing rock and roll and that's the way it's going to sound. I like all kinds of music. I think that's also been an interesting journey for me then I did a jazz project, a tribute to Billie Holiday, and I was working with all these great jazz musicians here in Copenhagen, and uh, and that was also very inspiring and made me use my voice in a different way because all of a sudden I didn't have to compete with a Marshall lamp anymore, you know. <laughs> so that kind of brought some different dynamics into my singing, and then there was also all kinds of personal life-changing events that also influenced me and changed me as a performer and songwriter and maybe as a person as well.
1: One of those life-changing events was back in 2009 when Mm. you were standing in Copenhagen Airport on your way to Slovenia for a music festival. Yeah. What happened when you received that call?
0: Um, Well, I had uh, just been going through a pregnancy with my husband and we had just a week prior to this call discovered that There wasn't actually a living fetus there. It was a very kind of something called a molar pregnancy. And very seldomly this can develop into a form of cancer, which is just like one in a thousand patients develop this cancer. So it's not even one person a year and then gets diagnosed with this form of cancer. But uh, yeah, I picked the one (laughs) percent.
1: Over the phone.
0: Yeah, over the phone, yeah. Yeah, because basically, I mean, we um, they had found this uh, malignant tumor removing the placenta from the pregnancy, and they didn't discover that till that time. And then it was very kind of urgent for me to come into treatment immediately. So I was actually, next day I went and started chemotherapy. It was pretty intense. And then I kind of was in, uh, in treatment for half a year Yeah.
1: How do you walk away from that experience, the trauma attached to that? How did you respond creatively even?
0: Yeah. um, Well, it was um, definitely, of course, very frightening. We'd just been very close to it. Like my husband's best friend was diagnosed with leukemia around that time, and his mom had just been through a very rough patch of breast cancer. So we'd been around a lot of cancer at the time. So it was very... Scary, you know, because it was very real to me what it meant. I was also fairly young, you know, so it was just like obviously the thought of dying as well as also maybe not being able to have kids and all these things that could maybe come from such a thing. So it was uh, challenging, but in a way, it made me focused. I think, you know, I think I discovered from these life altering kind of traumatic events that. You don't know how you're gonna to respond to something like that happening until you stand there. But I find that I have a quite a strong survival instinct, I think. Every time something has has happened to me that's been very traumatic. I also been kinda of overwhelmed with with a lot of gratitude, I think. You know, like in that instance, there was all these people that were there to help me and the fact that there was like one doctor who specialized in like treating this disease that actually got me through it and i was quite overwhelmed from that experience feeling grateful as well so i think that that was uh something that carried me through somehow <laughs> that ability and i discovered that and i saw it clearly you know also coming into yeah receiving chemotherapy you know you see people about to receive treatment and some people are very angry, you know, and that's their initial response. Also the unfairness of this happening to them and why, why does this happen to me and, and there's all these flaws within the system and people are not there. to And you could just tell that it was a very difficult place to be. I can totally understand why one could feel like that, but it just didn't feel like that to me somehow. So I think that that kind of made me get through it fairly well intact. And I came through it with learning something.
1: I'm always fascinated when talking to people who've experienced the closeness of death in a way, Mm. how present it remains in your mind to have that perspective. Yeah. So you talk about feeling gratitude. Is that something you've been able to keep with you on a more or less a daily basis since then?
0: No, I think that sort of sense of clarity and serenity you can only kind of borrow that, (laughs) you know, you can't own it somehow, it's just something that you can tap in and out of, I think, but you know, just to have visited that place, you can remind yourself of it, but you also get tangled up in daily annoyances and whatever might irritate you, you might find challenging in daily life, you come back to that and that's part of living as well, but I think having experienced it, is still a reminder that you can keep with you. But it's not a permanent, enlightened place that you can live within, I don't think. But I think that going through very sort of difficult life stages has that potential within them, that you can have momentary <laughs> enlightenment in a way, where you kind of like, okay, this is what, what really is important, and all this other stuff is not really that important. And that can be a powerful thing to experience. That there's not really anything other than love and, you know, all these things that really matter at the end of the day. When you stand there, that's all that really matters. Mm. And that's an important thing to have discovered, even if you can't stay there all the time. Mm.
1: In 2017, the unthinkable happened, and your husband and the father of your child. Nikolai passed away as the result of an accidental overdose. Yeah, I-, I can't imagine what that's like to experience and the sorrow that you've had to walk through. I was curious when preparing for this to read how much you delved into various forms of spirituality mm. and spoken to a lot of interesting people in the months following Nikolai's death. I wondered what you learnt from those conversations. Uh, And what left an impact on you, Kira?
0: Well, I think that this was a similar state in a sense that, you know, in the first maybe half a year or so, you're very awake. You're like, okay, there's a lot of stuff that you can't remember looking back at it. Everything that isn't important, you shed that, and it's just you try to get to the essence of what is important. And I think I was never really someone who spent any time searching for any sort of spiritual answers. or I wasn't interested even in the afterlife or the possibility of an afterlife because I kind of felt that there was plenty <laughs> to get on with being here, you know, and no one knows anyway. And But all of a sudden it became very pressing in a sense, you know, that I was very was this it, you know, was I never going to see Nikolai again? And it was stemmed from a desperation as well of kind of loss and grief. I mean, was there a possibility that we could meet again? And then that made me curious to ask other people of what they believed in and how they coped with their loss or people that kind of devoted their life to a spiritual path. You know, I was reading like the Tibetan book of the death and I went to speak to a priest here in Copenhagen a few times who was a very clever man. I read an interview with him and he was very philosophical. It wasn't all, only the Bible, you know, it was also, he also took an education as a psychotherapist as well to have that different track. He spoke of Kant, Blixen and Freud and uh, also Poets and the arts as a way of finding a glimpses of spirituality, and but it was it was I didn't find any answers as such. I found maybe glimpses of an understanding of something, but I haven't found one set of beliefs that I just bought into and said this is this is the way that I decided the world works. And I don't really think that anything has offered that aha, kind of, or that sense of recognition, of understanding. I just feel that, well, I felt that it was still necessary for me to speak to people that had that as an extra dimension, that offered that as an extra dimension, because it wasn't enough for me to speak to a psychologist, a shrink that felt like, um, it just felt like the world became too small, you know, compared to what I had just experienced. It couldn't fit that experience somehow. It wasn't enough just dealing with my emotions, you know. I needed to speak to people that had that as a possibility. And also, I think that for me, I found some peace and a sense of um, I can relax with the fact that there's so much that we don't know and that we will not know and all the possibilities that lies within that i think that there's a, that that is enough i think so could be that there's so much that we couldn't even imagine and that give me a sense of peace mm. yeah
1: i'm also curious about the nature of your relationship with nikolai because he played in your band he was an extremely accomplished musician yeah and so how much of your language as a couple, was devoted to, to music. Yeah. And and how have you been able to comfort yourself in continuing to play music uh, whilst being reminded of that loss?
0: Um, well, it did feel like an amputation, you know. It felt like, okay, there was a part of me that was gone in that, that we were so interlinked and tied together on so many levels. We met in music and uh, that was... Not half of our relationship, but I mean, it was just in, it entwined everything in our personal lives. You couldn't say that music was over here and then our private life was over here and our family life and our friendship and our love life was over here. It was all one big thing in a way. So it was, it was definitely a humongous loss and it was uh, very hard to rise from. But then I also found that so much of Nikolai was instilled in me still within the music, so I could still find Nikolai in the music somehow. And I could communicate with Nikolai somehow. I could still hear his voice in the music and his advice and how he would play something. And in that sense I still feel he's with me, you know, in the way I write and develop and continue to develop as a as a songwriter.
1: Can you remember the exact moment when you decided to embark on what became the echo of you?
0: Yeah. Um, it was actually just an evening I was lying in bed. It was no, maybe two months after Nikolai's passing. Or maybe it was shorter, I don't remember. But I remember I was lying with our son Morgan and my stepdaughter, his daughter Nora, and we were just all in the same bed sleeping together And I was lying there thinking that, oh, it was almost like, okay, I need to make this album for Nikolai. And when you lose someone, when you lose your closest partner in everything, then you also kind of lose your sense of the future. Everything that you planned for and everything you'd imagined you were going to do together and experience down the line, it's all gone. you That's just a big sort of nothing. And you can't imagine A future anymore. And I think that was a way of reclaiming a future in a way. It was a very kind of like, okay, this is something that I can plan for. So I wrote John Parrish, who is a close friend and also a collaborator for many years now. And I said to him, I just think that I need to make a date, you know, I need to sort of say that could we just make a plan to record maybe in December, you know, and I don't know what's going to happen, you know, but I feel that I need to do this. And he was like, okay, don't feel any pressure, but we can definitely do that. So we scheduled this time, and and then every time I sat down to write, songs just came. They were very pure in a way and very finished somehow. So it was like, uh, I wouldn't say it was effortless, but it was definitely just, I don't really know how it happened other than I sat down with the guitar and then they kind of usually just came. And then a lot of the uh, the rest of the time, because all the songs were written in the nine months following Nikolai's passing, so it was very much in the fresh grief. But I still feel that it's not necessarily just a dark record. I also feel that it has a lot of light and love in the songs, in a way, and hope too yeah, it captured a lot of things, but Firstly and foremost, I think it was a declaration of love, in a way, for Nikolai. Yeah. I was trying to put it all into one work, you know, into one album. And it keeps lingering on, you know. I don't think I'm going to stop writing songs that has little imprints of that experience and Nikolai within them because it's such a big part of me and my life now to live with that experience and that loss but of course it changes color and it changes over time becomes something else too
1: it's one thing to have the courage to write and record these songs but i could imagine it's quite another thing to stand in front of an audience and perform them how was that experience for you
0: it was quite powerful actually um I actually had a tour planned. I mean, I went out to do some shows in a few months after Neil was passing because we were scheduled to play these shows with this uh, project called In the Beginnings, which was like with um, Maria Faust. Yeah, with Maria Faust and an Estonian choir, and we had some shows in Estonia and big one in a church here in Copenhagen, and uh, and we decided to do that. So that was one thing to do that because somehow that whole album also was strange was also the last album Nikolai got to partake in making and also it was quite a dramatic piece inspired by the Estonian people's history, which is quite dramatic and also dark in a sense there was a lot of loss and death and grief and stuff tied into that whole tale that we kind of fabricated from the inspiration we found there so uh, it didn't seem odd at all to play that and was also helpful to play being in a large ensemble but then um, I had a tour scheduled which had been scheduled for a year and a half with a Danish piano player called Nikolai Hess which was like six months following Nikolai's passing and we were scheduled to play like twenty two shows very intensely on the road. And um I was kind of in doubt as to whether that was gonna how that was gonna feel. It was a very intimate setup, of course. It's different to be in a big group with like a big choir and horns and standing just alone on the stage with a piano player is a quite a different way of performing.
1: And Nikolai's passing was major news. So Presumably everybody who's coming obviously knows what you're going through.
0: Yeah, so that was definitely, you know, yeah, everybody knew. But it actually ended up being quite healing in a sense because I quite quickly realized that I had to kind of address it almost straight away, you know, because I kind of felt like, okay, the audience are kind of like holding their breath. You know, everybody's sitting there waiting to see whether I'm going to kind of break or what's going to happen here. You know, everybody was needed for me to say something in a way, and it kind of like made everyone relax, you know, that I said something about it. And I also introduced some of the first songs that I wrote to Nikolai on that tour in a way, you know, repeating it every night and saying it every night, saying it loud in front of a large group of people every night and playing those songs was also a way of understanding it because I think you have to kind of relearn that fact of someone dying is like impossible to grasp. It takes you maybe forever to really understand it, but you definitely don't understand it in the first six months. That was a very helpful tool for me to keep repeating it to myself and then starting to grasp it and also feeling that there was a lot of love there. People were very supportive and in a sense, they were also invited into a very intimate space. It was something to share, and obviously a lot of people came to me following that with their personal stories of loss and grief. And I went out on a tour later with an author called Naya Marie Ait, who wrote a fantastic book about the loss of her son who died a tragic accident as well, He, he fell out of a window having taken some mushrooms, so he was kind of in a psychosis, and he was only 24 years old. So we became actually great friends and did this tour together where I would play music from the Echo of You, and she would read from her book, and then we would have these conversations. It was quite powerful, kind of therapeutic for us as well, I think, to do something like that.
1: Is it difficult to then become a lightning rod for other people who may have experienced grief? How do you respond to that when people then want to share that with you and you're still dealing with your own grief very much?
0: I think it's a healthy thing because I think you can feel very lonely when you're in the midst of grieving. You, It is a lonely place, so it's powerful to feel recognized in a way and to feel that that mirroring is a powerful experience for anyone that goes through something like that to be reminded that death is also just a part of life and we all have to die and that reminder that we don't really like to be reminded of our own mortality we have built a society where we remove it from sight you know most of the time we don't think of it we don't even see Sick people. We don't see ill people. We don't see mentally ill people. They're all kind of shoved away, so we're not confronted with that fear of that part of life. And I think that that makes it so much more shocking when you experience it. And therefore, it's a healthy thing to speak to other people that experience it and to remind yourself that it is also a part of life that we shall die and and that we will lose people we love, and we will be one day lost to people that love us. And to understand that can also make us live maybe more intensely while we're here, you know, in a way.
1: Mm. It's beautiful that you're able to…
0: Yeah. It's kind of like now that you have to go through something like that, (laughs) it's, um, yeah, I guess there's some comfort in in the fact that you do… Learn something, and also maybe evolve from it.
1: And I'm sure you're very much still going through it because it's not yeah. something that you ever no. <laughs> reach the end of. No, no. So to that end, I was also interested in your latest album, "Inat Bliya vikamda Yeah, which I guess translated means "Tonight we we're growing we're old. growing old." Yeah, <laughs> it's um, kind
0: of less poetic in English somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I still like it, but yeah. um,
1: but this album. I was really interested in this one because first of all, your choice to for the Mm. first time sing in Danish Mm. and then overlaying that with the fact that you've had this somewhat maybe surprising success with the Echo of You because it was such a personal project and it resonated with so many people. Was it daunting for you then to go back into the studio and try something new?
0: Mm, I think I just kind of find, uh, I just work all the time, you know, and I think that that gives me some form of grounding and, The kind of rituals that goes with that, that you just devote yourself to writing and creating stuff all the time, it's just a part of my life and something that I've done for many years now. So I don't let myself get intimidated by the success of any prior works because I think you have to constantly just in that sense look ahead. And luckily there's not like an end final destination, you know, So kind of like little uh, stops along the way, and one usually leads to another one. And you can see that sometimes in order to make a really good record, you needed to make a record which was maybe not completely clear yet. It wasn't completely focused. Maybe you were still kind of standing in one place on your way to another, and that is evident in the work. And then all of a sudden you make something that where it's all very clear and comes into place. I think you have to kind of allow for mistakes and exploration in order to keep your creativity afloat and to keep that creative spark, in a way. I think that's something that I, I'm quite good at, in a way, because I just write all the time, and uh, and now I'm also in the middle of a whole new record. So yeah.
1: <laughs> so what feeds that creative process for you? Well.
0: I mean, I guess all of these life events have obviously been inspiring, but it's a constant curiosity and drive of wanting to make, always need to make another good song, you know, all the time. You're kind of hunting that and trying and searching for it. And it's a constant journey in a way. It doesn't end. And uh, I also find it's really inspiring working with all kinds of different people from different genres of music and you know, some people can, are really good at something that I'm not as good at and they get something from me that they couldn't do and, and that way I think I've been developing over time from all of those collaborations that I've been insisting on throughout the years.
1: Mm.
0: For me, it seems like I just have to make myself available somehow and then obviously there's a lot of days where you just it doesn't really materialize. Maybe it's not really a good song, but... It was that song that kind of made the other songs happen, and it's sometimes it just feels like the song just falls into your head, it just comes completely finished. But I think it was all those days that you put into it prior, you know, Well, they didn't really come. That kind of allowed for that one song to happen, but you kind of got to make yourself available for it to happen as well. And then over time, that amounts to a catalogue where you have a lot of songs and maybe at least a few of them are pretty good
1: (laughs) do you think one can be objective about assessing their own work
0: i don't know really i hope that you i hope that most people most songwriters will think that what they do is good you know what i mean if i didn't like the songs i wrote i don't think i would have continued you know what i mean (laughs) so i do think that I, i do like my own music and I do think that there's something for me to continuously sort of discover from revisiting my own songs. That's kind of one thing that I've learned that over time, you know, when I, when I go out to play a song that I've released, usually I write the song and then I release it not very long after, you know, that's so how it works for me. And then I spend maybe the following year playing the song live and then. It's sort of like over that period of time, I kind of come to understand what the song was really about. I come to know it, and and then when I get it, then I'm done with it. I need to write another one. So that's kind of been my experience.
1: The first track on the new record, mm. Hollywood, mm. piqued my interest just because lyrically it feels that you're exploring the notion of longing for a place or a dream that perhaps you can never actually achieve. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about that? And was that in any way a reference to that longing you even felt as a young lady leaving Denmark?
0: I think that there's definitely some self-reflection in that. But also just it's quite a common human condition in a way that we kind of chase a dream that we don't necessarily reach. But maybe we find something else along the way. But it's like you can get caught up in the chase, you know. And the destination in itself becomes the main goal. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a part of what that song is about. And Hollywood being a metaphor in a way, right, of, of the dream. Any dream doesn't need to be the American dream, but any dream that you didn't really maybe make.
1: How do you reflect now on your own career, given the fact that you've faced extraordinary grief personally? Of course, nobody's path is linear, but how do you reflect on that in terms of your creative output?
0: I think it's been a great journey, you know. I think that um, I'm proud of a lot of the different projects and uh, I had to risk my success by gambling with doing something that I didn't know whether was going to succeed or not many times throughout my career. And I think that that's been a good Challenge and a rewarding thing for me to do, to actually succeed with it in a sense that I made it happen and I made a lot of records now. So, in that sense, I think I can be proud of that and happy about that journey.
1: How do you decide whether to collaborate with somebody? Because it seems that when you do that, you go all in. Yeah. <laughs> You're more than willing to record an album with them and tour with them and and really throw yourself fully into the project. Yeah. There's never any assurance before you dive into that. No. So how do you assess who you want to work with?
0: Well, I mean, I guess it's just like uh, you don't know always what you're getting into, right? I mean, but that's also part of the excitement of it. It's all the things that you can't predict that is the most interesting parts of it in a way. And then I think I always get very uh, excited and greatly involved and then that fills me up for the time being. That's everything. And then I get into the next project and then that's the most exciting and fulfilling thing for that moment. So I think it's been uh, fair to each project that you give it your all. You give it the time that it deserves and uh, you play the songs enough that they've kind of had their life. And (laughs) yeah, so I think I've given that. To, to most of the things that I've done
1: you mentioned Billie Holiday earlier
0: mm.
1: what is it about her that you're so drawn to as an artist I
0: was just always fascinated with her since I was like 13 years old I found a record in this uh, local mall in this record store and uh, she was this, this beautiful woman you know with the white flower in her hair and that mythical name and And then when I heard her voice, I just was like, okay, this was just like from another. It was uh, almost godly, you know. It was just very um, sublime in a way. And then I also kind of felt that somehow, even though I was very young when I discovered her music, it resonated with me somehow, the stories she told and the kind of pain that she expressed. And um, somehow I... I felt uh, I recognized something in that on a more instinctive level. It's hard to say exactly what it is, but she's remained constant throughout my life. She, She keeps being relevant, I find.
1: Do you find that music can provide some of those answers that you're searching for in terms of existential questions?
0: Yeah, I think, well... I think you get little glimpses of the divine sometimes in music, of something larger than you, something larger than life, something that you can't really grasp and, again, something that you can't really hold on to. It's just those little moments. And that's enough that you keep hunting it somehow, or you keep wanting to revisit that place. And I think that that's maybe a a form of spirituality, maybe the closest thing to a spiritual experience as well that I've had in my life is those moments in music.
1: It's a beautiful way of summing it up. Hmm? (laughs) Kirisko, it's a remarkable story that you have, and thank you so much for your honesty in sharing it with us today. Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.